Spirit, I pray that you would produce gratitude and thanks in our hearts through what we hear today. And Jesus, we do thank you for the cross. We are sitting here this morning uh, forgiven. There's no guilt, shame, or condemnation in this place today because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. So thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We gather in your name. We believe that you're here with us. As we often pray, would you move around the room? Would you sit next to people? Put your arm around them. Tap them on the shoulder. Speak to their hearts. Conform our minds to your truth, Jesus. We welcome you. Come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to start this morning with a a short dialogue. I'm going to ask a question and feel free to raise your hand and and contribute to the conversation here. I want to think about food in in a healthy way to start out with and just ask the question, like, what what good purposes does food serve? What are some of the good purposes that food serves? Fuel. Okay, great. It provides sustenance. It provides energy. My wife is very fond of saying, food is fuel. Food is fuel, particularly if our children might be complaining about what's for dinner. Pleasure. Okay, great. Yeah, the, the word that came to my mind as I was kind of thinking through this was, was celebration. That there's something, there's something about food that it, it has the potential to really enhance joy and, and pleasure and, and celebration. Okay? What else? Kyle? Okay, great. Great. Yeah, community. Even the word communion, which we celebrate and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through the communion elements, it's like common union, okay? And so we're, we're talking about how a meal, how food aids in or can help foster human relationships, okay? So I, I think those are actually kind of the big three purposes that food serves, like community, sustenance, and celebration, Okay, so keep those in mind because we're going to come back to them. And, you know, the, the thing with, with food that sort of struck me as I was preparing this week, other than just the commonality of it, I mean, other than fasting, we don't, especially in the West, in the United States, like, we don't generally go a day without food. So, like, just hand to mouth, I mean, it's a very normal thing. But other than that, like, who doesn't love food? I mean, I've never met someone who's indifferent about food. We all love food, and yet, all of us struggle to enjoy food as a gift without being controlled by it. I mean, I would say most of us, most people would say, yeah, I struggle to enjoy food without being controlled by it. See, on the one hand, there's the group who, who maybe. The group of us who maybe like regularly eats too many donuts in one sitting. When I was in college, there were some local businesses that put together this discount card for students at Moody Bible Institute, and one of the places was Dunkin' Donut. And it was just a couple blocks from campus, and you know, late night, 
munchies, college student, not a lot of money. Hey, buy one, get one free donuts. That's pretty appealing. So I would go and I would buy four donuts at like 10, 30, or 11 at night and eat all four of them. And I thought that that was totally fine. So there's, there's this group of us who regularly eat too many donuts in one sitting. We raid the refrigerator at 11.30 p.m. Our cars are full of fast food wrappers. We've never eaten five to seven fruits, five to seven servings of fruit and vegetables in a day in our whole life. And we're always thinking about our next meal. Okay? But then there's another group of us who count every calorie, both the ones we eat and the ones we burn, who would rather skip a meal than put something processed into your mouth, who eat five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables for breakfast, and who are always thinking about our next meal, right? And, and at, the, at the end of the day, we, we all are asking food a question that it can't answer. We're asking food a question that it can't answer. It's a different question for the two different groups, but food can't answer either question. One is, basically, can you fulfill me? Can you give me satisfaction? Can you make me happy? That's, that's four donuts from Dunkin' Donuts at 11 p.m., right? But the other question is, can, can I control you enough that I can find either like safety in my life because my life's chaotic and I have to control something or can I control you to the point that I know I'm significant and I find meaning and value through my super healthy, whole foods, organic lifestyle and that's my salvation. We're asking food these questions that it can't answer. And here's the deal, both groups are judgmental and self-righteous towards the people in the other group. Well, I would never do that. Well, I would never do that. So the question then is, how do we exercise self-control when it comes to food? How do we exercise self-control when it comes to food? What does it look like to walk in freedom and wisdom? Last week I said self-control is the intersection of freedom and wisdom. What does it look like to exercise freedom and wisdom when it comes to food? Jesus said, or Paul said in Galatians, that Jesus Christ came to set us free. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. And Paul also says that Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God. Okay, so if you're in Christ this morning, you have every resource necessary to walk out wisdom and freedom when it comes to food and alcohol, and any other thing where we need self-control. We're talking about this for two reasons. We're talking about self-control and food for the next few weeks. Next week we won't because we'll be out at the picnic enjoying some food for God's glory. But then we'll be back here in two weeks to talk more about self-control and food. Our friend Travis Daigle, uh, who's had an amazing journey when it comes to self-control and food, is going to come up and share along with Randy about some real practical stuff. So today is going to be a little more sort of like theological and a little more high level. In a couple weeks, we'll, we'll really get down to nuts and bolts and nitty gritty. But we're doing this for a couple reasons. One, we have not taught you how to be self-controlled as a church. Just in general, we haven't talked about self-control hardly at all. Last fall, we walked through some blessings and wounds of our history 
and we said that one of our wounds was we emphasized our freedom in Christ, but not the need for wisdom in expressing our freedom. And that was particularly true about alcohol, which we talked about last week. But I think it's true of food as well. In fact, I would, I would wager, I would, I would offer this thought. I think food, with a close second being caffeine, I know I'm stepping on all sorts of toes there, northwest toes, but I think food and caffeine are the two most accepted idols in the church. And we don't, we don't even bother to talk about that. Or be like, hey, uh, does that, is that thing controlling you? Wow, that, Jesus saved us for freedom. We don't want anything to control us. Even great stuff like food and coffee and wine. We don't want those things to control us. So can we have a conversation about that? And we haven't normalized conversation in the discipleship process around self-control. We, it's like we think, oh, that's just none of my business. It's like, no, we're brothers and sisters. We're trying to grow together. We're trying to walk through life and say, I love you. I care about you. I want you to grow to be 102 years old. But if you keep eating four donuts at night, it ain't going to happen. A couple weeks ago, I uh, met, met a brother, fellow pastor, and in our like, literally first serious conversation together, he was talking about some issues he was having health-wise, and particularly around wheat, and when he would eat wheat and what it did to, to his body. And, and his, his uh, brother had had uh, like a colon cancer and real young, and so there's a concern in his family. And the Holy Spirit just like welled up this courage and boldness in me to look at him and say, brother, I want to urge you, don't eat wheat for 30 days and then put it back in and see what it does to you. I said, listen, we need you in the game for the next 50 years. Your family, his wife was sitting right there, your family needs you for the next four decades. Like, we can't afford to have you taken out by something like wheat. Right? And I I walked away and I thought, wow, that was kind of weird. I don't think I've ever said that to anybody. And later he came back and he said, Abe, that was so helpful. Thank you for saying that to me. Thank you for saying that to me. It's not about the wheat, right? It's about self-control. It's about what, what, how has God designed you and your body, and you've got to sort through that in community. The second reason we're going to talk about it is because of the book of Titus, which we're studying through right now. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Titus. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, where you will hear Paul use this phrase, this word self-control, four times in this passage. Titus chapter 2, Paul's concern here is that he wants the believers in Crete through Titus to understand what does a healthy Christian life look like? There's false teachers in Crete. And there's super worldly, ungodly culture in Crete. And so Paul is saying, look, we don't want just a religious community that checks all the boxes and does all the right stuff on the outside, but there's no transformation. And on the other hand, we don't want a total godless, I'll just live however I want to kind of of community. So what does a healthy community look like that's founded on the gospel where we say, hey, here's what Jesus Christ has done for me, and now what impact does that have in my, in my work life? 
And what impact does that have in my friendships? And what impact does that have on my diet and on the way I engage with the good things that God's made? And what impact does it have on my marriage? So that's what Paul's doing in Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's healthy doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So younger men, literally, you get one thing. You get one thing from Titus. Be self-controlled. That's all you get. Which is a reminder, by the way, and a reinforcement that it's a basic discipleship issue. Self-control isn't something that like the super godly decades of following Jesus people like Donna Bunny Crook now get to worry about. Okay? It's for everybody. Self-control is basic. It's 101. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul's point here is that your life preaches a message. Your life preaches a message. You wear your doctrine like clothing that people can see. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us. So God's grace trains you. It, the NIV says it teaches you. Well, what does the grace of God, what does the gospel train us? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. There it is again, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So we're talking about self-control because the Bible talks about self-control. And the book we're studying talks about self-control. And so we, st- we said, hey, we should slow down on this and not just blow past it. And let's talk about self-control. And we probably could have picked 10 more issues. But we said, let's talk about alcohol, because Titus mentions it twice. And let's talk about food, because we never do. And yet, it's a big issue. So the question that I asked a few minutes ago, how do we exercise self-control when it comes to food? Verse 11 and 12 gives us a clue. Understanding the grace of God is key to walking out a self-controlled life because the gospel, the grace of God, is the thing that teaches us to be self-controlled. So, what is the good news about food? Well, it starts all the way back in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, and then also verses 16 and 17. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God made food and it is good. There's another verse in chapter 1 of Genesis that talks about God giving fruit from every tree of the garden to Adam and Eve to eat. And then God looks at this creation state and he says, it's very good. Food is good. Right? Food is good. Let's not make the mistake that that I made about alcohol thinking it was inherently evil and is a wicked thing. No, no, no. God made it. It's a blessing. It's good. It's not a necessary evil that we have to just somehow figure out how to manage. It's a gift from God. And uh, Genesis goes on to say, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree of the garden you can eat from. Do you hear the abundance? Do you hear the blessing? It's like, you got plenty to eat, guys, and it's probably the most amazing food you've ever had. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it, you will surely die. And if we continue to flip through the Old Testament, we'd find that the goodness of food is affirmed over and over again. We find these feasts in the Old Testament where God commands his people to come together and feast, have these big parties, and to party in Yahweh's name for his glory as a way of saying, Look at all this abundance that God's given us. We're going to eat it because he's so good. And then in the New Testament, Jesus' favorite parable for what the future, the kingdom is going to look like, is a big feast, a big party. Food is good. Throughout the Old Testament, the presence of food was a sign of God's blessing, and the absence of food was a sign of God's judgment. It's good. Eating is a picture. Your life preaches, well, guess what? The way you eat preaches. Eating is a picture. It's a metaphor. Eating tells a story. Eating is a signpost, a physical signpost that points to a deeper spiritual reality. What's the deeper spiritual reality that the physical act of eating points to? It's this. You got to go all the way back to the garden. Humans were created with need. They're created needy. To, to need, by the way, is to be human. So don't think that if you're in need, there's something wrong with you. To need is to be human. And what does God do with these needy people? He blesses them. He abundantly provides for their needs. What's that? That's his grace. That's his grace. And then what do the humans do? They take in this food, including the fruit from the tree of life. So they're in need. God provides. They take it in. They receive it. And then what's the outcome? Life. Life. That's the story that eating is supposed to tell. Which is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is, to be, if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. But what story, friends, what story do we tell when we eat? I don't want you to answer right now. I'm going to ask you another question in a minute, but just think about this. What story are you telling with your eating? What story are you telling? Back to Genesis, here's the story that the humans told Chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
God's provision. But he said, don't eat it. But he still made it, and it's still good. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Man, it looked amazing. All the food probably looked amazing. This food looked amazing. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So this tree offered them something that nothing else could provide for them. They asked this tree a question that it could answer, but the person they were supposed to get the answer from was God, which is, what is, what is knowledge? What is the knowledge of good and evil? How are we supposed to live? That's basically the question. And they went to the tree, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And Adam and Eve, in their rebellion, practically, here's what they said. They said, I will eat what I want to eat. That's what they said. Because you gave us all this stuff over here, and you said, don't touch the rat poison, it'll kill you. Actually, it wasn't rat poison, it was good, it was amazing. But don't touch this really, really good, amazing thing, but I've provided all this for you. You're going to have to trust me for this. And they said, no, we're going to put in our mouths what we want to put in our mouths. But of course, it wasn't just about the food. It was about the knowledge. And it wasn't just about the knowledge. It was about trusting God. Because in the Gospels, Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. So here's the deal. Their physical act of eating revealed something that was going on in their hearts. That's the deal. And the same is true with us. The act of eating reveals what's going on in our hearts in the moment. And so often, we do what Adam and Eve did. We take a good thing, and we make it an ultimate thing, which means it's a God thing, and then it's an idol. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says about creation and about created things and about humans that they've exchanged, they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature the created thing, rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So another question for all of us. Let's think back to those three good purposes for food, community, sustenance, and celebration. And I want to ask you, how does sin, how does our idolatry, our exchanging of a good thing for, an alter, or a good thing for this you know, creator, how does sin distort God's good purposes for food. Think about community first. Food is meant to foster relationship. How does sin maybe mess that up, you think? So in the letter to Corinth, Paul talks about these agape feasts, these kind of church parties that they would throw, which were meant to remember Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. And and what was happening was some people weren't, weren't getting any food at all and others were getting drunk. And so in that case, instead of food fostering relationship, food was ruining relationship. Because people cared more about the food than they did about their brothers and sisters. And food is meant to be a a thing that we use to express care and love, right? As a way to say, I love you, instead of saying, no, I love this instead of you. Okay, any other thoughts on that? How does sin distort this good purpose for food, this, this idea of community, that food fosters relationship? Great. How does, what's the impact of that on relationship, Alex? Okay, good. Good, so food can become a status thing. Food can become a status thing. I did a little bit of research on the seven deadly sins, which honestly I've never studied before, but I remember gluttony was one of them. 
and I don't have time to talk much about that, but the, the big concern with gluttony was that it, it fostered economic inequality. Because the people who could afford to eat too much, not only would they eat too much, and that was bad for their bodies, but what that meant was they were taking food out of other people's mouths. And it was causing people to go hungry. That was like the real concern with gluttony. Here's another thought that I had in terms of uh, how sin distorts the society of community. And this may be hard for some of you to hear. Food is meant to foster relationship. It's meant to actually, food is sort of like, like a table with a bunch of food is, is, is meant to be a picture of something that draws people together, right? That's the idea. It's like a magnet. Like everyone's drawn to this table with all this food, and then it's going to foster community around the table. I believe that food today actually isolates us often. It doesn't foster community. It's something we actually run to instead of community. Okay? And here's what I mean by that. A lot of times we eat to cope with pain. And a lot of eating that happens that's unhealthy is done in secret because it's shameful. A lot of times we eat because we're bored. A lot of times we eat because we're worrying. And, and so you see how like food, you actually, we're entering into relationship with food instead of using food to foster relationship. Okay, what about sustenance or energy? How does, how does sin distort God's good purpose for food, that food is fuel? Okay, good. So there's the whole question of genetically modified food. I, I, I didn't have time to do a lot of research on that either, though I was, here's, here was my thought that I didn't have time to run down the rabbit trail of. God, the food that God created in Genesis 1, he stepped back and he said, this is very good. Would he say that about genetically modified food? I don't know. That's, I'm not saying anything one way or the other on that. It's an interesting thought. Um, I don't want to get too hung up on that so that we begin to parse like what's actual food and what's not food and you know, what does God want us to eat, what does he not want us to eat. I think the motivation is, is the bigger issue, but I think that's definitely, there's a ton of brokenness in that that is leading to economic inequality and all kinds of dis destruction of earth. We're supposed to be good stewards of the planet and all those sorts of things. So that's definitely a problem. What else? How does sin distort this idea? Yeah, Jason. Okay, great. Great. So having just a purely utilitarian view of food. And we, both, we lose out both on community and on celebration at that point. Okay, what else? Yeah. Great, so just the pure like commercialism and, and uh, in extreme like capitalism that's really driving the food industry leads to a lot of lies, a lot of untruth around, around food, okay? Anything else? Absolutely. Yeah, I was reminded of that verse from Jesus. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Your father knows your needs. So how often does sin come in and distort this idea that like this is my sustenance, but I have to trust the father to provide it. And where does that put us in? It puts us in a place of faith, which is exactly where Jesus wants us. I had one other thought on this. When we see food as fuel, then we're saying that food is something that serves me. Okay? It's my servant. It does for me what I need it to do. I'm the master over food because it's my fuel. 
right? But I think the way sin distorts this is it actually flips that around, where I'm the servant and food is the master. And I will do what food tells me to do. And if food says, I'll do it. I'll stick it in my mouth. Or, or if food says, you know what? If you eat that, you're going you're to gain half a pound. Oh my goodness, I'm not going to eat that, right? So either way, there's a sense in which the food is controlling us and we are serving it. And we're not, we're not seeing it as, as, as a good thing and it's fuel, but it has become much, much larger than that. Six years ago, I found out that I was allergic to wheat, dairy, cane sugar, and eggs. And this is a guy who loved like pasta and bread, cereal, really, really loved cereal, baked goods. I worked for Starbucks for four years and then left to plant a church, but Starbucks was my office. And so I would wake up in the morning and the first thought I would have, it would be, what pastry am I going to buy today? <laughs> I'm not kidding. It wasn't four donuts at 11 p.m. anymore, but it was, it was a form of slavery. And so on January 21st, 2011, I wrote this on my Facebook page. I may have spent 30 minutes finding this this week. Um, do I really believe that Jesus is the bread of life? And that he alone brings satisfaction? I'm about to find out. This baked, good, pasta, bread lover just learned I'm allergic to all dairy products, wheat, cane sugar, and eggs. But evidently, my body's just fine with Fritos, bacon, and beer. I am choosing to see this as a blessing. That was day one. That was day one. Two months later is my son's five-year uh, fifth birthday party. He wanted to go to Chuck E. Cheese, so we did. Passing on the pizza was easy. It's Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> but we did buy him a birthday cake at Costco. And while the cake was getting dished out, there, you know, the food was, it was calling, calling my name. But I resisted. But after the party, we wrapped up the cake, because you know, it's Costco, you got like lots of cake left. And I'm literally carrying it out, with my arms out like this, carrying it out to the van, and I'm walking, and I'm having the biggest pity party inside that you've ever heard. Like, man, this stinks, it's my son's five, fifth birthday, and I can't even have a piece of cake. Man, this is horrible, this is so, so terrible. It's like, it's cake, it's cake. But six years later, I can honestly say, my tastes have changed. God's given me great freedom. And my little phrase that I've kind of come up with over the years is this. Like, by God's grace, I'm free to not eat. I'm free to not eat. And I'm also free to eat. There are times when I break my diet. I had a donut yesterday. It was so good. I'm serious. It was so good. We went to Pow's Donuts. I hadn't had a Pow's Donut in literally years. Oh, it was wonderful. I'll talk more about that in a minute how a donut can lead you to worship. <laughs> but sin distorts this idea that food is fuel, okay? Now, some of you, I just want to say one more thing, and then I've got to keep moving us on here. Some of you are using food to cope 
with the pain of your past. I understand that's a very real thing. And, and if that's you today, you don't, you don't just need repentance. Okay? You don't just need to, to alter your relationship with food and turn from your using of food to meet a need that it's not designed to meet. Though you do need repentance, but you also need healing. You need healing. Jesus needs to enter your story. And that's going to take time. So I just, I want there to be tons of grace and realize like this stuff doesn't just change overnight. For me, it's been a long process. Okay, finally, I think sin distorts celebration, uh, particularly through, through gluttony. Food is meant to enhance the atmosphere and aid in joy. And I think particularly with gluttony, when we like, we just go way over the top. And it tends to happen at like parties or when we go out for an amazing meal right, where the, where the setting is perfect for us to just use it to celebrate, and instead we leave feeling like, man, holy cow, wow, I shouldn't have had that third helping. Um, and, and, and I think what happens, at least for me, is instead of food enhancing the joy, food becomes my joy. Food is my joy. So, what does the gospel say? How does it correct these, these sinful tendencies? Well, again, turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to look at one passage from, from this gospel that has been so helpful for me around this issue of food. So John chapter 6, it's also going to pop up on the screen. The context here is Jesus, the day before Jesus fed the 5,000, and then he at night got in a boat and went to the other side of the lake. And the next morning, the 5,000 woke up. They saw Jesus was gone. They figured out where he went, and they went around the lake. And they tracked him down, and they basically said, can you do that again? Can you do that again? And in verse 47, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died because one of the things that, that they threw at Jesus when they said, hey, can you do that again? And he started pushing back on them. They said, well, hey, hey, Moses, Mo- God, God gave Moses bread every day in the wilderness for 40 years. So we're only coming back for day two. And why can't you give us bread a second day in a row? So he says, yeah, you know, that, that bread that your fathers ate in the wilderness, yeah, they ate it. It kept them alive physically. But they all died. And he's talking about spiritual death. He's, he's, talk, he's talking about both physical death and spiritual death. Because remember, everyone who died in the wilderness, died in the wilderness. They didn't get to enter the promised land because they didn't have faith in God. And God's judgment was poured out on them. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. And he's pointing at himself. So that one may eat of it and not die. Like, he's saying, you guys want more physical bread just to fill your bellies? You're missing the fact you need a better bread. You need a better bread. And that's me. You need a bread you can eat and you'll never die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoa, is he going cannibalistic here or what? The Jews, they disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give, give us his flesh to eat? They thought he was talking about cannibalism. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's almost like he runs with their misconception because he knows they're so dull that they're completely missing it. So he's like, fine, I'll actually exaggerate just to make the point. Yeah, you got to drink my blood. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. See, the Father is Jesus' life source. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. So Jesus is saying, the Father is my life source. I need to be your life source. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Jesus is drawing a straight line between eating and believing. Jesus is saying, look, your stomach is hungry, and so you put food in your mouth, and it fills your stomach for a little bit, right? But if you think about it, food, food is lousy at doing its most basic job of sustaining your life. It's really bad at it. Because you've got to keep eating more and more and more. But Jesus says your hungry stomach is a picture of your hungry soul. Your hungry soul. You need to put me into your hungry soul. And so he's using eating as a metaphor. But it's an amazing metaphor, right? Because eating involves all five of your senses. You see food. You smell food. You can feel food. You taste food. And you can, you can hear food. It's very relational. Right? I took too big of a bite. <laughs> it's, it's super, I mean, think about it. Taste, taste. It's so intimate. Right? Like senses are the way that we relate with one another. I see you. I hear you. If we're a little more familiar, I might touch you. If we're really familiar, I might smell you. Okay? Sometimes you're a little more familiar with people than you want to be and you're smelling them. But man, the number of people you taste is a short list. I'm just saying. Taste, taste implies intimacy. It's intimate. And Jesus is saying, I want to be, that's how intimate I want to be with you. I want to be as intimate with you as you are with your food. I want you to like eat me up. And those of you who are parents, you know. When you have those little babies and you hold them, there's something weird inside you. You're like, I want to actually eat you. <laughs> what is that all about? <laughs> it's about this. I'm serious. It's about this. It's like, if I, if I could like, not that I would, but if I could like take a bite off your leg, I would somehow <laughs> feel closer to you. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. Yes, how about it, right? I knew I'd have at least one witness. 
So when you, when, you, when you eat something, you're becoming one with it, right? You're uniting yourself to it. And so eating is a picture of believing. So Jesus, when he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, he's saying, take me in. Take me into yourself. He's saying, eat of me instead of eating too much. And he's saying, eat of me instead of eating too little. And he's saying, eat of me instead of a bunch of junk. Or eat of me sometimes instead of eating at all. And then he says, eat of me even as you eat. Right? And I'll tell you, for me, this reality of Jesus being my deepest joy and and feeding on him, it makes fasting a joy and it makes feasting a joy. And, And by no stretch am I there. I mean, this week has been so convicting for me. It's like, wow, I have so much room to grow in this. But I see little times where I'm like, yes, fasting's a joy. Feasting's a joy. That's how you know when you're starting to have a healthy relationship with the food that God has created. See, our souls are asking a question, but we switch the question from our soul to our stomach. And food can't answer the question. Only Jesus can answer the question. Can I be content? Can I be satisfied? Psalm 63, verses 5 through 8 says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul, your soul has arms, and it's reaching out to grab onto something that it wants to be one with. Your soul will cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. See, every time we eat, we have an opportunity to do two things. We have an opportunity to actually proclaim the gospel by saying, here I am, I'm empty. My stomach's empty. You're a good God. You provided something that's good. I can take it in, and now I have life. And I'm praying, I'm hoping that some of your mindset around food and eating, even this morning, will begin to shift. Now, the practicalities of how it's going to work out, it's going to take a long time. I'm just being honest. But I hope the way you view it begins to change. But here's another thing we can do with food. We can say, not only is it a remembering of the gospel, but it's a foretaste of what's to come. We can say, someday we're going to be at an amazing feast. And this feast I'm at right now, Oh man, it's just a little sample. It's a little sample of what's coming. I want to encourage us to do one, no, two practical things just to put this into into practice. First of all, I want to encourage you to come ready in two weeks to get really practical on this. Okay? Come ready in two weeks to get really practical on this. If the Spirit's convicting you and you're like, man, I got to address some stuff. Come ready in two weeks. So spend the next two weeks praying and getting ready. That's number one. Number two, a very simple but difficult thing you can begin to practice even now is giving thanks. Giving thanks, I believe, begins to address all that idolatry around food because Thanksgiving confronts entitlement. And how much entitlement do we bring to food? 
yeah, I deserve this. We just assume it's there. You walk to your refrigerator in the morning, you open it up, and there's stuff in there, and we're not like blown away that a miracle happened. But it's a miracle. Okay? So say, say thank you. It confronts entitlement. It helps foster contentment. I think a specific thing with this is whatever you're eating, like when you, if you pray for your food and you say thank you, which is great, Jesus modeled it throughout the Gospels, I encourage you to get specific with your thanksgiving. And we're actually going to have a chance to practice this in a minute. But get specific, like thank you for kale. Some of you are not thankful for kale. Thank you for pepperoni. Right? Easier, yes. Thank you for bacon, right? Now I'm preaching the gospel, right? <laughs> but seriously, get specific. It, C.S. Lewis said that the praise of something enhances your enjoyment of it. So guess what? When you say thanks for the specifics on your plate, you'll enjoy it more. And then finally, thanksgiving fosters worship. Friday night, we had a birthday party for Lisa Sheets. It was hosted by Jeremy and Jessica Rowan. And they put out an amazing spread, beautiful table in their backyard garden. And we sat there as we were kind of getting ready to to pray and, and eat. And I'm looking down this table and I'm thinking, this is a picture of the kingdom. This is the kind of feast that Jesus talked about. It was off the hook. And after we ate, Brittany Alves played. It was amazing. Uh, She covered Jolene and Ring of Fire. (laughs) It's a good night. And her originals were incredible. And then after that, we took turns blessing Lisa verbally. And Randy brought the house down at the end with his amazing affirmation of his wife. And one of the things he was talking about was how he loves the fact that she enjoys a lot of the simple things in life. And she gets like super giddy and kind of excited about something like a really crunchy, organic Fuji apple, right? And the example he used was uh, lunch that they'd gone out to the day before. And they went to this restaurant, they love it, and they had this sandwich. Lisa was so excited about the sandwich, and she ate the sandwich, and at the end, Randy went to the bathroom and came back, and Lisa said, hey, the guy just came over, and here's what I said to him. I said, I love Jesus, and your sandwich made me worship him. That is such a great picture of how, like, you come in with, with gratitude and thanksgiving, and it, it, what does it do? It just, it just draws you up. It causes you to worship. So that's a simple but difficult like, assignment I want to give you. Let's give thanks for the specific food that God's given us. And during communion today, that's, that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to end our time together. How amazing that Jesus took all this amazing gospel truth about his, his loving sacrifice for you so your sins could be forgiven. He said, look, I want you to just take me in. That's how intimate I want to be with you. Believe in me. He said, I want you to remember so often what I've done for you that I'm going to take super normal everyday stuff like bread and wine and I'm going to infuse it with the meaning that says, always remember me every time you eat. 
That's why he holds up the cup and breaks the bread and says, do this in remembrance of me. I don't think it's just the one time when we're gathered thing that's meant to remind us of the gospel. I think it's like literally every time you put something to your mouth, we're supposed to go, Jesus is real. And he met my deepest need. So when we come to the table today, we're remembering, of course, the body and blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us, shed for us. But I want us to realize that what his work on the cross made possible is that you could be that intimate with him, that you could be one with him. That he wants you to like take him in and eat of him. So we're going we're gonna to stand up. Go ahead and stand up right now. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to come to the table. We're going to get the elements. Go back to your seat. Okay, we're going to take communion all together today. So get the elements. Go back to your seat. And while, while Brittany's playing and we're singing a little bit here, um, I want you to, and we'll do a song as we're going to the table, I want you to think about one specific thing that you have eaten this week that you can give thanks for, okay? Now, this might feel a little, little strange, but that's okay, because God's going to be blessed, and that's really my main concern, because the Bible says whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So... What I want us to do, after we've all gotten our elements, we're all back, we're going to have a time where you're going to call out from your seat and you're going to say, thank you God for pizza from the Cloverleaf Tavern. I didn't happen to have that this week, but it's been on my mind, okay? <laughs> Obviously. So, so seriously, we're going to do that. We're just going to give God thanks for some stuff, specific things that we ate as a very simple way of saying, God, you're good, you give good gifts. And ultimately, all this stuff points to Jesus, what he's already done and what he's going to do in the future. So, Spirit, lead this time right now. Lead this time right now. You're so good to us. Anytime we feel hungry, may we be reminded of our desperate need. Our desperate need. And anytime we put something in our mouth, may we be reminded of how abundant your provision is through your son, Jesus Christ. So speak to us now, Holy Spirit, and may Jesus Christ be praised for what he's already done and for what he's going to do. When you're ready, you can go ahead and go to the table.